people. Hear more from God's word today about how this wonderful gospel works out in our lives. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, feed us your word today. Help us, guide us in the way to live. You are the steadfast guide. Show us, Lord. Show us the way we are to walk and then empower us to do it. Help me to be able to speak clearly and accurately what your word says. And I pray by your spirit you'd work in the hearts of those who listen so we might know the blessing of you and all the things that you have ordained for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start off the sermon this morning with a little pop quiz. Don't worry, I I won't grade you. In fact, I ask you not to answer aloud, but I want to pose to you ten questions for you to answer in your own minds, and then I'm going to give you a little bonus question at the end, okay? A little quiz, ten questions, here's question one. Remember, answer this in your own mind. How should Christians deal with alcohol? Number two. How should Christians educate their children? Number three, what is the right way to pursue a marriage relationship? Number four, what is proper clothing for going to church? Number five, to what kind of music should Christians listen? Number six, is it right for Christians to eat all foods, including blood? Number seven, should Christians honor Sundays in any particular way? Number eight, how should Christians respond to issues of African-American mistreatment in this country? Number nine, how should Christians deal with the opportunity to vote this November? And number ten, what is the right way for Christians to deal with COVID-19 and government church restrictions? Now the bonus question, what do you think of Christians who do not answer these questions in the same way that you do? Likely, at least one of the questions I just asked you is about an issue about which you feel strongly. You feel a deep conviction as to what is the right answer to that question before God. In fact, you may even feel that if you answer that question in any other way than you do and behaved accordingly, that you would in fact be sinning against God. It would be a violation of your conscience to do anything different than what you're doing. And because of this, you probably feel that other Christians should think and do as you do. And you may not be able to understand or even accept Christians who do not. Now, it's not as if the Bible has nothing to do with the questions I just mentioned, or that the Bible says nothing about it. The Bible does. However, though the Bible gives relevant commands and principles for even these issues, the Bible does not specifically say how a Christian should respond. They therefore become what are sometimes called conviction issues or issues of conscience or issues of Christian freedom. Christian freedom or Christian liberty 
refers to that realm of activities that are not strictly prescribed, that is commanded, or prohibited in the Bible, and in which Christians can legitimately take different positions. There is such a thing as Christian liberty, but still Christians can passionately disagree about the proper exercise of Christian freedom over conviction issues. And this can become a huge problem in the church. Why? Because people of different opinions can become suspicious of others, can start slandering others, and can even avoid or refuse fellowship with one another. And the unity of the Spirit, that unique privilege we have as the body of Christ, what is supposed to be such a great testimony to the world of our mutual love for one another, that unity dissolves. The body becomes fractured. And the members of the body all suffer. Our church here at Calvary is not immune to the danger that comes from deeply held convictions. Even here, there are a diversity of positions on the issues I just raised to you and other Christian issues. Indeed, strong convictions, especially about COVID and other things in recent days, they have the potential to not only hinder our fellowship with one another, but to even degrade and destroy it. And furthermore, if strongly held opinions are made to have sway over others who do not actually believe them, and those persons act against their own convictions, act against their own consciences, the Bible says that those persons will spiritually ruin themselves. So it's a potentially dangerous situation. Is there some way that we can preserve the spirit of unity in the bond of peace when we have such different and even strongly held convictions over different Christian freedom issues? Is there a way for even us here at Calvary? There is. And we must submit to that way in order to protect ourselves, to protect one another, and to honor our Lord Christ. Where is that way outlined for us? Though there are principles, relevant principles, given throughout the scriptures, the most straightforward teaching about it comes in Romans 14 and 15. And that's where I want to be with you today. Please take your Bibles and open to Romans 14, if you haven't already. This is the scripture passage you heard earlier. The title of my message today is, When Convictions Collide. Today will be part one of this message. We're going to set up the background of this very instructive section of the Bible, and we'll cover the section's first major point. Part two, Lord willing, will be next week, where we'll cover the passage's other three major points. I want to start with just giving you the background of this passage so you can appreciate the, the level of conviction that people were feeling in the church in those days. What is the situation Paul is dealing with in Romans 14 and 15? The Apostle Paul writes this letter, the book of Romans, with several purposes in mind, and one of them is to specifically address an issue of 
disunity between Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome arising over conviction issues, certain conviction issues. And remember, the uniting of both Jew and Gentile as equal kingdom citizens through the gospel of Christ was an extremely momentous development in redemption history. Before Christ, Jews mostly held Gentiles at a distance, if not outright avoiding them and despising them. After all, Gentiles worshipped false gods, they were ceremonially unclean, and they were often the enemies of Israel, the literal enemies of Israel. And for their part, many Gentiles mocked, were suspicious of, and harassed the Jews. Now it's true, some Gentiles are actually attracted to Judaism, biblical Judaism, and its God, and they became God-fearers or even full proselytes to Judaism. But even when they did this, they were, they were forced to give up not just their sins and false worship, but really part of their Gentileness. They had to become Jews in order to worship God to some extent. And even when they did so, they couldn't, they couldn't proceed in worship in an equal way with the Jews. Even in the temple, Gentiles could only go so far where Jews could go even further. After the Babylonian exile... Jew-Gentile antagonism often centered upon three external practices that epitomized the difference between Jew and Gentile. And you won't be surprised by these. These were circumcision, the eating of clean or unclean foods, which included food being sacrificed to idols, and then the keeping of various holy days, Sabbaths, weekly Sabbaths, or annual Sabbaths. By New Testament times, these practices had become so highlighted in the minds of the Jews that they really were the litmus test of godliness. I mean, the Jews, they, they've been in their exile, they're, they're back in their land, but they've got Gentiles all around them and even among them. So there's great pressure to give up these practices. But Jews felt a true man or woman of God resisted that Gentile pressure and practiced circumcision, food laws, and keeping of the Sabbath. Only carnal traitors abandon any one of these practices. But then, Jesus, the Son of God, comes onto the scene with his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection. He perfectly fulfills God's Old Testament law, the law of the Jews, for all of those who believe in him. And with that law thus fulfilled, the old law passes away and is superseded by the law of Christ. And the greatest indication of this incredible change was the tearing the rending of the veil in the temple, which separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple and really the rest of the world, that veil was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. This was symbolic that all people, Jew and Gentile, have full access to God, even in the Holy of Holies, by faith. This was an incredible development. But... The implications of it were not seen or pursued right away by Christ's disciples. You can trace this in the book of Acts. It takes a heavenly vision from God to Peter in Acts chapter 10 before Peter is willing to accept that he actually can visit Gentiles and even eat Gentile food. 
Eventually, all of Jesus' apostles acknowledge and proclaim the message of salvation by faith in Christ to both Jew and Gentile, apart from any ritual adherence to the Old Testament law. Not required. It's all been fulfilled in Christ. But this was such a great shock to the system of the Jews, even for those who loved and believed in Christ. You mean these things that we've been fighting for and holding on to for so long, they they no longer are important. And some Christian Jews could not accept this change, but rather insisted that Gentiles had to become like Jews in order to be accepted in Christ. This meant, of course, prescribing circumcision, food laws, and the keeping of Sabbaths to the Gentiles. How did the apostles respond? On the one hand, they rejected this Judaizing tendency as foreign to Christ and the gospel, but they nonetheless instructed Gentiles to be sensitive to the convictions of their Jewish brethren. And this is exactly the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Still, though, the question of how Jews and Gentiles were to understand each other and whether Old Testament practices were still required or beneficial for Christians, it continues to come up again and again in the New Testament church. Just look at the letters of Paul. Galatians deals with this issue fundamentally. Colossians deals with it partly because of a false teaching with Jewish influence. Ephesians talks about the uh, unity of Jew and Gentile together equally. 1 Corinthians talks about food being sacrificed to idols. And then we have the book of Romans. Christian community at Rome would have been another primarily Gentile congregation that had some Jews in it, but primarily Gentile. And so in this letter, there is an emphasis on the common need of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. See that in Romans 1 to 2 especially. And the common blessings of salvation that come to both Jew and Gentile. Paul even takes time to clarify in Romans 11 to the Gentiles, they are not to look down on their Jewish brethren, nor even to suppose that God has rejected the nation of Israel forever. Instead, they are to be grateful for the Gentile inclusion into the people of God and to look forward to God's full redemption of Israel. But as we also see from our passage in Romans 14 and 15, There is the issue in the Roman church about how to handle Jewish convictions. You may have noticed the subject is not introduced in Romans 14 as a Jew-Gentile question, but notice how the section ends in Romans 15 and verses 7 to 13 with an explanation of how Jew and Gentile are to glorify God together. That doesn't come out of nowhere. Also, these issues discussed, eating food, honoring days, these are exactly two of the main issues that Jewish Christians would have especially struggled with in a body with Gentiles. We don't know if circumcision was another issue. Apparently, it wasn't as big of an issue in that church. Now, do notice how the particular controversy at Rome over these issues is different than it was in other New Testament churches. For example, Here in Rome, the issue, this is not an issue where the salvation gospel itself is at stake, like it is in Galatians. Because, as you heard, read earlier, Paul's instruction is that it is totally fine if certain persons want to abide by food laws or keep the Sabbath. That's fine. But that's different than what Paul says in Galatians, where he says, if you start submitting to that law because you think it saves you, I tell you, you have no interest in Christ. 
That doesn't seem to be the issue at Rome. The believers in Rome are not presenting these practices as necessary for salvation. Notice, too, that the issue does not, indirectly, or does not directly involve the danger of idolatry. In what many note as a parallel passage to this section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 8-10 to deals with eating food sacrificed to idols. And there, Paul does again acknowledge Christian liberty, but his emphasis is, don't allow your rightful Christian liberty to cause you to get close to and to indulge in demonic idolatry. There's a danger there that he wants to keep the people from. And we don't see that same emphasis here in Romans. It doesn't seem involvement in idols is a great danger in the Roman church, so it's a little different. What is the issue, though, in Rome? The issue is that certain Christians, probably Jewish Christians and Gentile proselytes to Judaism who've since come to know Christ, they are insisting that while not necessary for salvation, practices like abstaining from ceremonially unclean foods and honoring the Sabbaths, they nevertheless represent best practices for Christians. Yes, they're not required for salvation, but if you really love God and want to follow him, you'll do these things. They were clear marks of godliness before. They are still clear marks of godliness, they argue. Meanwhile, other believers in the church, probably mostly Gentiles, but maybe some theologically astute Jews, they were arguing that such observances were totally unnecessary and perhaps even unhelpful. And these would have been the majority in the church. So here's the situation in Rome. Different convictions on food and Sabbaths coming out of a long and respectable tradition of Jewish observance. That was quite honorable. But these are becoming a continual thorn of discord among believers, and they threaten to break open into wider division and animosity in the church. Now, Paul, by the Spirit of God, is going to give holy instruction to address this situation. Now, these issues, they're not directly parallel to some of the Christian freedom issues we deal with today, but they, the instruction Paul gives will give us the relevant principles to deal with the Christian freedom issues that we do see. So this will be a very relevant passage for us, especially now. Paul's specific instruction to the Roman Christians spans Romans 14.1 to Romans 15.13. That's why I asked Greg to read that whole section earlier. That instruction can be broken down into four main commands. Now, I'll give these to you now, but we're not going to explore all of them today, so don't get too worried about it. When convictions collide in the church, how should Christians respond to their brethren? Number one, Paul teaches, welcome one another and do not judge each other. That's Romans 14, verses 1 to 12. Number two, edify one another and do not cause to stumble. That's verses 13 to 23 in Romans 14. Number three, please one another and do not simply please yourself. That's Romans 15, verses 1 to 6. And then number four, rejoice with one another in the glorious gospel. That's Romans 15, verses 7 to 13. Now, there's wonderful teaching in all of these verses that we don't have time to go through fully today. We're just going to start by investigating the first part of Paul's teaching, that first command from Paul, which I think is actually extremely worth our time in really giving special focus to. 
told you, the first command about how to respond when convictions collide is to welcome one another and do not judge. But let me expand on that just a little bit. In Romans 14, 1 to 12, Paul presents three reasons why, when it comes to conviction issues, you must welcome and not judge your brethren. I'll give you those three reasons, and these we will go through today. Number one, God welcomes your brethren. Number two, Christ, not you, is the judging Lord. And number three, you too will be judged by God. Now, these reasons are not only divided thematically in the verse portions before us, but they're also set off by the repetition of a certain rhetorical question in the text. A very challenging one, which is, who are you to judge your brother? That's in verses 4 and verses 10. So that's where I'm making the divisions. Let's explore how this teaching unfolds verse by verse. We'll start with the first reason. When it comes to conviction issues, why must we welcome and not judge our brethren? Number one, God welcomes your brethren. This is in verses 1 to 3. Let's read that again. Romans 14, 1 to 3. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Notice the command given in verse 1. Accept the one who is weak in faith, Paul says. We could translate the word accept as welcome or receive. The idea is that this is the kind of welcome you give when you receive someone into your home or receive a person into your group of friends or acquaintances. Paul's addressing this command to the majority of the believers at Rome, though there's an application to all. The majority of believers who take a freer view on these conviction issues, and he's, he's telling them, make sure that you are welcoming others who have a more conservative view than you. Make sure you're welcoming them as true members of your group. And notice the description Paul gives of this second more conservative group. He calls them the weak in faith. Now, that probably doesn't strike you as a very flattering description. I don't think that's the way they identify themselves. But Paul uses it because there is some truth to it. It's not that this second group lacks saving faith or that they're overall Im immature, necessarily. It's just that when it comes to certain conviction issues, these people cannot accept that they really have freedom in Christ to live less strictly than they do. They either do not understand or they cannot believe the full freedom that Christ has really granted them, and so it is a spiritual weakness. Now, Paul does not say so explicitly in these first 12 verses, but later on, he will indicate that Christians should gradually, eventually, come to a place where they are strong in faith. They do understand and accept their full Christian freedom. But that's not Paul's primary concern. And neither should it be our primary concern. Notice now in verse 1, Paul describes how we should not be welcoming those who have a weak view of Christian freedom. He says, don't welcome them just so you can pass judgment on their opinions. 
Don't receive them just so that you can quarrel, over the, quarrel with them over disputed issues. Don't bring them in and say, we're so glad you're here. Welcome to the body. Now sit down and let us tell you all the ways that you're wrong and need to change. Paul says, that's not how you should welcome those weak in faith. That's not welcoming at all. Paul illustrates what he means by highlighting one of the contested issues in verses 2 and 3. He says, some Christians rightly believe that they can eat all things. Nothing is unclean to them. That's biblically true. But there are also some Christians who unnecessarily restrict that freedom. They don't currently have the faith to eat all things, and so they eat only vegetables. You say, oh, why only vegetables? Or remember, you're coming from a Jewish background, you're living in a mostly Gentile area, you've got certain kosher rules you want to keep, and you're not sure if the meat that's available to you is following all those rules. So better just to avoid it all to be safe. So they would eat only vegetables. Now, how should the two sides be responding to one another over these different food convictions? Notice what Paul says in verse 3. On the one hand, Paul says, the one who does eat freely should not regard with contempt those who restrict their eating. On the other hand, those who restrict their eating are not to judge with condemnation those who have no qualms about eating anything. And aren't these specific instructions exactly addressing the temptations that two groups would have like this in any conviction situation? The word for regard with contempt, dealing with the first group, could be translated despise or disdain. The idea is you're looking down on them. You're treating them as of little worth, maybe even of no worth. And this is the temptation of those who have a less restrictive conviction. They look at the others and say, look at him, so high and mighty. Sorry, he's too holy for our group. I can just see him judging us now. Look at him. Look at those eyes. That's the temptation of those who have the less strict view. But on the other hand, the word for judge, in verse 3, has the sense of making a condemning conclusion, passing an unfavorable judgment, finding fault. And this is the great temptation of those who take the more restricted view. They look at the others and say, how can they act so recklessly, so thoughtlessly, don't they have any reverence for God, any fear of sin? I just know that they are using their liberty to excuse fleshly indulgence. I know it. Have you ever found yourself thinking one of these ways about your brethren who have different convictions than you? Either looking down on them because they're more restrictive or judging them because they're less restrictive. What does Paul say we are to do when we face that temptation? Don't go down that path and stop if you are. You are neither to disdain those or condemn those who take a different conviction issue than you. And why? The end of verse 3. For God has accepted him. And this statement primarily confronts the weak who are prone to judge. But it applies to both, both the strong and the weak. You think that God cannot possibly approve of someone who takes a different conviction than you? Paul says, I tell you, no. God is actually just fine with how that person is acting. These external matters that you're so caught up in, they are no issue to God. He accepts both. 
Actually, speaking of accept, did you notice that the word accept, as it's used in the New American Standard, in verse 3, it's the same word that's used in verse 1. Paul's telling us, brethren, accept and welcome into your fellowship those that God has already accepted and welcomed into his. I mean, really, will we not welcome and approve those that God already has? Are we holier than God? Will God approve when we judge more strictly than he does? Now, my brethren, think about what this means for some of the hot-button Christian freedom issues I brought up to you. I'll just use one as an example. You may feel, for example, that no one who comes to church in shorts and flip-flops could possibly reveal their Lord and be accepted by Him. Or conversely, you may feel that a person who's decked out in a suit and a tie is a hoity-toity legalist who is far from God's grace. But the Bible, let's face it, does not prescribe or prohibit either set of clothes. With the right heart, both are acceptable to God. And with the wrong heart, neither clothing choice is acceptable to God. So what's our job as believers? What are we to do when we face those with those different convictions? It is not to judge based on those externals, but instead to welcome them in. Welcome those Welcome both those who feel the need to dress up for church and welcome those who rightly understand that there is, there is freedom when it comes to clothing. Now, yes, I know the Bible does give certain principles about church attire. You are not to flaunt your wealth. You are not to become a distraction or a stumbling block to others in a reasonable way. But beyond these, we should welcome one another because God welcomes them God welcomes us no matter our conviction in this area. And that's just one example. The same principle can be applied to other Christian freedom issues. Now you may say, but I know what's going on in their heart. I know why he dresses that way. Or I know why he takes that stance that he does. He's only making his Christian freedom choice out of a sinful motivation. He's indulging in some irreverent license. Or he's nurturing his self-righteous legalism. I can tell. Well, if that's what we're thinking, Paul has a response to that in the next set of verses. We've seen, first of all, that we are to welcome and not judge others over conviction issues because God welcomes us along with our brethren. But there's a second reason in verses 4 to 9. That reason is Christ, not you, is the judging Lord. Let's start with just verse 4. Look at what it says. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul's rhetorical question at the beginning of verse 4 is startling, very challenging. Who do you think you are to judge someone else's servant as you do? What kind of hubris do you have? The word for servant here refers to a household slave, domestic slave. Paul thus pictures us 
when we judge others over their convictions, acting like a guest at someone's house in New Testament times, judging the worth of a particular slave. The slave is going about his work, and we're looking, and we say, why does the slave do it that way? Why doesn't the slave do it a different way? He must be a bad slave. I'm sure his master disapproves. Paul's pointing out that such a judgment is absurd. Why? Because, first of all, you don't have all the information to properly judge that slave. You don't know what kind of arrangement he and his master have made with each other. Maybe he's doing exactly what his master wants. And secondly, you don't own that slave. So that slave doesn't have to meet your standards or expectations, but his own master's. And who is the master who has both the ability and the right to judge each one of us? The Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the end of verse 4. Paul explains that this fellow slave of Christ, that we condemn for not taking the same stance, having the same conviction as we do, will in fact stand approved by his master. Only the real master, who has the full information and ownership of the slave, has the right to pass judgment on him. He will do so in the proper place and time. But why will he stand approved? Because his master, Paul says, is enabling him to stand, even without your same conviction. This is kind of key, right? We think our convictions are so essential. If you don't adopt this view, it's going to be spiritual ruin for you. But Paul says, actually, Christ can make him stand without that. Because what's really essential? Not that Christian freedom conviction, but the Lord himself and the heart of faith that genuinely seeks the Lord. When that's there, the Lord can make him stand even without your conviction. Paul elaborates on this assertion in the next two verses. He brings up another conviction issue, really the other big conviction issue that the church was dealing with, holy days. This is verses 5 and 6. Look at those again. Paul says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. Notice how Paul again outlines the two main views in the congregation. You've got one group who regards certain days as special. These would be the Sabbaths. And you've got another group that doesn't regard any days as particularly important in and of themselves. And notice what Paul says should be done about these divergent opinions. Should we browbeat one group into taking the side of the other? No. Paul says, rather, each person is to be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, let them be. Don't try to force someone else to adopt your conviction. Now, it is true. Sabbath observance is not required for Christians. Not on Sunday, not on the original day, the seventh day of the week. Colossians 2, 16 to 17, backs up what we're hearing here. Nevertheless, 
God is pleased, notice what Paul is telling us here, God is pleased both by those who feel the need to continue to honor a particular day of the week, keep the Sabbath, and those who don't observe the Sabbath but celebrate every day alike. Why? Because they both do it for God's sake. And it's the same with food. Notice Paul goes back to food in, the, in, the, in verse 6, the food issue. He says, look, both the one who, tra- who eats traditionally unclean foods and the one who abstains from traditionally unclean foods, they do so with thankfulness and unto the glory of God. And you know what? That's all that matters. God approves of both of them, even though they have opposite convictions, because these external matters are things indifferent to God. What really matters is, are they obeying their consciences, and are they doing it with a heart that genuinely seeks the Lord? Does that surprise you? Paul continues this explanation in verses 7 to 8 by reminding us about something fundamental to Christianity. Look at verses 7 to 8. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Paul's stating really what it means to be a Christian in the most basic sense. It means that everything, our lives, our deaths, and everything in between, it is the Lord's. It's to be done unto the Lord. It is the Lord's. The Lord is free to do with it what he wishes. And if we do live and die in this way, what do we demonstrate? What do we testify? Paul says, the end of verse 8, we are the Lord's. Everything is to be done for the Lord. Now, do you notice, with this explanation here in verses 7 and 8, Paul states something more directly, which he has been implying all along. And that is, not every stance on a Christian liberty view, or a Christian liberty issue, is acceptable. There are indeed some who, and we've probably all seen this, They try to excuse selfish indulgence under the guise of Christian liberty. Hey, hey, don't judge me. I'm just practicing my freedom in Christ. When really they're pursuing sin and pursuing selfish indulgence. They're not looking to please Christ. They're looking to please themselves. And so when the master comes to assess them, they will not be approved but condemned. But for the one who fundamentally acts as a Christian, follows his conscience for the Lord's sake in everything, even if it means ultimately exercising less than his full Christian liberty, what does Paul report? That person will be approved by Christ. Wholeheartedly approved by his Lord. Mere external matters like food, drink, and days. God is not looking at those. What ultimately matters to God regarding these things is the heart. And that's significant because, you might want to ask, but how will I know the difference? How will I know the difference between those who are pursuing their conviction out of a good motivation or a bad one? All I can see is that they're doing something that is scripturally acceptable on the outside, 
but how do I know whether their heart is right? You know what the answer is? You don't. You can't. Only God sees into the heart. And this is what he says in the scriptures. We know that famous verse from Jeremiah 17, 9, talking about man's heart. Man's heart is utterly deceitful, desperately sick, ultimately unknowable, both by human outsiders and by the one who has that heart. Well, what does the next verse say? Jeremiah 17, 10. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God says, I'm the only one who can look at the heart. And because of that, I am able to judge. So mark this. Mark this, my friends. If external objects like food are indifferent to God, and the heart is what matters, then only the Lord can rightly judge over these issues. Only he can look into the heart. We must simply welcome those with different convictions and leave the heart judgment up to God. And besides, the right of judgment is something that Jesus obtained for himself at great cost. And it is a right that we dare not infringe upon. Because now look at verse 9, how Paul ends this second section. Paul writes, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The this end that Paul refers to in this verse is what he just talked about in verse 8. Namely, that Christ has total ownership over his people in life and death and everything in between. To obtain this ownership, what does Paul say Christ did? For this reason, Christ died and lived again. That is, he died in the place of and on behalf of his own at the cross, he paid their sin debt, and then he rose again in victory. In doing this, Jesus obtained in a special way his rightful position as Lord and Master. Though the Son has always been Lord, has always been God from eternity, this is something the Scriptures make clear, the Son's incarnation and ministry work nevertheless uniquely suited him to be Lord of all the universe, and especially Lord of his redeemed people. This is why the Scripture talks about Jesus being exalted upon his returning to heaven, in titles and in crowns, etc. So as the Lord, as the Master, what does Jesus have exclusive right to do? to rule and to judge. To rule and judge what is his own. And isn't that what verse 4 already said? So what's the connection? Do you see how inappropriate it is for us ever to judge someone else with contempt or condemnation over a conviction issue? We are not the other person's master. We are not able to look into the heart and we did not live, suffer, die, rise again and ascend to heaven in order to obtain that position of Lord and Judge. That is not our position. 
So when we start judging one another, brethren, do you realize what we're doing? We are insulting the lordship of Christ. We are attempting to move Jesus off of his throne, set ourselves there and say, okay, bring in my brother, bring in my fellow slave. It's time for me to adjudicate him. This is highly inappropriate. We must not dare then to go beyond what is written, as 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 6 says. If the Bible plainly shows us that a brother or a sister is going astray from the way of God, then it is loving and right for us to confront that brother or sister. But if the issue is merely a Christian freedom issue that is not directly determined by the Bible, then we must leave that judgment up to the Lord. And do what instead? Welcome our brother. So have you found yourself judging others over today's conviction issues? Have differing views on COVID especially caused you to disdain or condemn a brother because you think you know what's going on in their heart? It's very easy to fall into that, I know. But we must turn from that. And there's an additional reason. An additional reason why we must welcome and not judge our brethren over conviction issues. We've seen, number one, we can't do this because God welcomes us along with our brethren. And number two, that Christ, not us, is the judging Lord. But number three, and this is how Paul concludes this section, this first section of his larger teaching, a third reason is you too will be judged by God. Look now at verses 10 to 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Notice in verse 10, we see again rhetorical questions challenging us on our judging others over Christian freedom issues. To the more restrictive, why do you judge your brother? Give me a good reason. To the less restrictive, why do you regard your brother with contempt? You're not doing anything wrong. The Lord is being emphatic with us that such judgment is heinous and uncalled for. But now notice the end of verse 10. Paul reminds us that we will all one day face the Lord's judgment. There's a reference to the judgment seat. The word for judgment seat here is the Greek word bema. Some of you have heard of that before. This refers to a raised platform on which rulers sometimes stood or sat to pronounce judgment. Paul is telling us, before you sit in judgment of your brethren, you should think about your own judgment that is coming. Now, yes, the true believer, the judgment that awaits us is not one that will decide eternal life or eternal death. Nor will there be some sort of calculation as to how much time in purgatory we need. No, none of that is coming. Because as Paul's already written in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing left to pay. It was all paid in advance. 
All has been satisfied by Christ's substitutionary payment on behalf of his own at the cross. Nevertheless, there will be an accounting of all people, believers included. A final assessment from the master of his beloved slaves. This judgment will be, as other scriptures indicate, to determine reward or lack of reward. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15 clarifies this, and it's also mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10. So think about for yourselves. Each one of you, if you're in Christ, you will face a judgment. Not a judgment for eternal life or death, but about reward. Did you take the opportunities? Did you rightly respond to the commands given by Christ? How do you think that judgment will go for you? Notice in verse 11, Paul quotes a section of the Old Testament to support the idea of everyone coming to stand before God in judgment. He is mostly quoting from Isaiah 45, 23. And what's significant is that that part of Isaiah is all about God asserting himself to be the only true God and thus the only real Lord and judge. And isn't that exactly what Paul has just been saying here in Romans? Only God has the right to judge the heart because he's God. Everyone will come to him, but not to you. You don't take that place. And Paul concludes this section in verse 12 by saying again that each one of us will give an account to God. Not only how we handled Christian freedom issues, how we handled conviction issues for ourselves personally, but also how we responded to our brothers and sisters who have different convictions. Brothers, sisters, you will give an account to God about that. God is going to say, and you will have to explain, why did you do what you did? Why did you respond to them that way? All of us we need to remember this. All of us, whether believer or unbeliever, whether restricted or less restricted in the way we live our lives, we will one day give an account to God. But wouldn't you want that to be a happy experience? Now, yes, God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of those who belong to him. But I don't know about you, but I would love to be like those faithful slaves in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. But when they came to be assessed by their master, they said, Master, you entrusted me with this, and I was faithful in it. Because what did they hear from Christ? From the Master? Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. Now enter into the joy of your Master forever. I want to hear that. I think you do too. And if we really do, then we need to heed the instruction of this passage. No longer judging one another for what are conviction issues where there legitimately is more than one opinion, but welcoming one another just as God has welcomed each one of us. Let me say again, when it comes to today's hot-button, controversial conviction issues, brothers and sisters, we must be willing to recognize that there is more than one right answer. Not every answer is right, 
We must actually make sure we're within the bounds of Scripture. But when we are within those bounds, we must charitably allow other Christians to do differently than us. Unto the glory of God. God is pleased even when others take different convictions than you do. God accepts them. We are too also. Christ is the judge of the hearts, not we. And we have our own assessment coming before God. Now, there's more to the issue of how Christians should navigate Christian freedom than simply welcoming and not judging. I mean, a lot of this is how we think about one another. But we need to also learn practically what do we do and what do we not do. And Paul's going to get to that. And I want to talk to you more about that next week. But first, we start with what are we thinking? And do we have a welcoming attitude in our hearts? Before I close today, let me just say something to any of you listening who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of what I've been saying is really focused on believers, but there is an application for you because as God says, as Paul says, quoting the Old Testament, a judgment is coming for every single person, for those in Christ and those out of Christ. And for those in Christ, that judgment is about reward. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are, unlike the people Paul is describing in this passage, actually living for yourself and dying for yourself and pursuing your various convictions for yourself, then a judgment is coming on you too, but it is a judgment to determine punishment, not reward. It is a judgment to determine what will be the level of your eternal torment based on what you knew and what you did and how you responded to people. God is concerned about Christians improperly judging one another. What do you think he thinks about non-Christians? For those who don't really know the Lord, they also improperly judge. They also try to take the seat that is only the Lord Christ. They look into the heart. Perhaps you do. God says that an accounting is coming for you also. But it need not be that way. If you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can be freed from that expectation. If you repent of living, from your, living for yourself, following after sin, being the Lord of your own life, looking to make yourself acceptable to God by your own works, by rituals, by various rules that you've added that God didn't actually require, you will give all of that up and instead embrace Christ and faith in Him as the only thing that makes you acceptable to God. Nothing to add to it. That He is the rightful Lord of your life and the entire universe and that your whole life is for Him. You will turn and believe. God says, I will cause you to stand. When the assessment comes, I'll pronounce you approved. Not because of what you did, but because of what my son did on your behalf. And that's a wonderful joy. That means that not only are you freed from eternal wrath, but you will now experience eternal life with the Lord who loves his own. If you haven't done that, I urge you to do so. My brothers and sisters, the world stereotypically complains about Christians being too judgmental. And we know most of the time that accusation is false. It's simply a way to excuse sin and to ignore the gospel message. But we have to admit, sometimes the accusation is true. 
Sometimes we do improperly judge one another, even as this passage has pointed out. So what should we do? We must repent of that. Repent of taking the Lord's place when there is no right to do so. And instead, let us welcome. Let us be known, as we ought to be known, as a welcoming people. Isn't that what Jesus said? They will know that you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a challenging word to us today. And Lord, I think all of us can admit there have been times where we have judged improperly. We've said, I can see the heart when really we didn't have a business. We didn't have a... uh, We couldn't rightly come to that conclusion. Lord, forgive us for that. But Lord, we're, we're grateful that you say you do forgive the heart that is truly repentant. But Lord, we instead want to embrace your blessed way of welcoming one another. Lord, even in these times, it is a way that we can highlight this wonderful reality even more than ever. As convictions intensify and as different opinions are multiplying, we can say, but I welcome them all. I welcome those who are really indeed looking to follow the Lord, even if their conviction is different from mine, and they are within the bounds of Scripture. Lord, we love your word, and we love you. Help us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you, Pastor Dave. Can I call you that now? Uh, Thank you for that powerful message.